Well, the school year has begun in Pasadena. Students have met their teachers. Teachers come in all stripes. There are those who say, hold your questions to the end. And then there are those who say, uh, there are no dumb questions. Ask any time and we can all track together. And I like those teachers the best because they encourage learning. And I was sometimes unsure if my own question was a dumb one or not. I like those teachers when I had a dumb question, but if someone else asked a dumb question that took up a lot of class time, I admit that on rare occasions I have had to roll my eyes a teeny tiny bit. We have been in a sermon series entitled Our Bible, The Question Book, and we've been looking on questions instead of focusing on answers. We've discovered that there are a lot of very good questions in the Bible. They are thought-provoking, they are insightful, but there's at least one dumb question that we are going to read today, and you can roll your eyes when you hear it. But in the lead up to our question, I kind of have to set the stage. Uh, we have to read in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Therefore, just as one man's trespass, now Paul has previously told us in this passage that Adam is the man he's talking about, uh, Adam's original sin. Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness, and this is Jesus, dying on the cross for us. One man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. But law came in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so grace must also, might also reign through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Paul has been talking about two kingdoms with allegiance owed to whichever uh, kingdom one lives in. One is the kingdom of Adam. And the original kingdom where we're born one in which we find that sin has a grip on us and death has dominion over us. And in this kingdom, sin reigns. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't escape this kingdom. And a beautiful island in an azure ocean doesn't do justice to this kingdom. It's not like that at all. Alcatraz is more like that one. That would, that, that's that famous prison off the coast of San Francisco. That would be a better representation of Adam's kingdom. And it doesn't look, I mean, you know, from the outside, if you didn't know what that was, it might not look so bad. But the words that Paul uses to describe it, it's a place dominated by sin, death, trespass, disobedience, condemnation. But there's another kingdom far, impossibly far away in another dimension that we can never reach on our own. And this is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And all who live in this other kingdom owe their allegiance to Jesus Christ. These people are given free gifts, forgiveness, grace for every mistake, and love, so much love that they have security 
and freedom and righteousness. That's a Bible word for a right relationship with God. So an unhindered flow and communication and intimacy with God. Instead of sin and death dominating, grace has dominion leading to eternal life. So I can just see the video game in my mind's eye. Jesus rappels down from the kingdom of light into the garbage-filled, sin-filled, dystopian kingdom of darkness, strapped in body armor, armed with lightning, thunder, armed with zappers and liquidators, armed with heavy, heavy weaponry, the likes of which we haven't even imagined yet, this Jesus, our rescuer, who will take no prisoners, our rescuer who will pluck us from the filth and danger and carry us to safety to his kingdom. But that, that's not it at all. That's, that's, if I wrote the Bible, that's how it would have been. But Jesus is from another dimensional kingdom, and he does indeed descend into the kingdom of darkness and sin to rescue us, but he does it armed only in fragile skin and bones, flesh and blood. And we know how well that stands up to bullets or to knives and nails. Jesus rescues us by being obedient to his heavenly father as we have not been able to be. Jesus takes the weight of human catastrophe. Think about our world. Isn't catastrophe a word that we attach to our world today? Jesus takes the weight of human catastrophe upon himself and he deals with it once and for all. And in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he opens the pathway to grace showing us the impossible, that obedient flesh and blood does overcome death. Our passage says the more sin reigned, the more sin increased, grace abundantly all the more super increased. Grace meets sin head on and overpowers it. And would you just look at God? Look at his amazing grace. So now that we have in our mind an image of two opposite, polar opposite kingdoms set up, we're ready for the dumbest question in the Bible. So I'm going to pick up from the tagline in 520. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then chapter 6, verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin? in order that grace may increase. That's it. That's the dumbest question in the Bible. But I guess there's a certain twisted logic to this question. If the astounding way that God meets sin with forgiveness shines a spotlight on his breathtaking character, then why not sin in a spectacularly big way that takes even more grace, a super duper abundance of grace? And isn't that going to show God off all the more? And the logic goes something like this. If A brings B and B is good, then why not do more A? And if moreover B is a very great good, isn't it our moral duty to do more of A. Do more sin so that we can show God's grace off all the more. The ends justify the means. 
but logic, that kind of logic, mathematical logic, doesn't take into, effect, into account the fact that sin leads to death. Oh yes, that part, that part. There are hard, suffering, painful consequences to sin. Any and all sin breaks God's heart because it fundamentally alters our relationship with him. And any and all sin breaks something inside of us and alters our relationships with each other. There is no such thing as a private, hidden sin that harms no one. Sin always seeps out in noxious ripple effects into our human relationships, even if the people in our outer circles aren't aware of the root poison, it always seeps out regardless. So embedded in this question is the fact that even by asking it, our desires and our attention has, have already wandered away from God. And our relationship with him is already troubled in order to just ask that question seriously. It's a smoke and mirrors question. So anybody who says, let me sin so I can show off God more, has absolutely no intention of showing off God more. They're really interested in the first part of that sentence. Let me sin a little. Let me continue to sin. And so the motivation of the questioner shows that they have already taken their eyes off God and they're interested in enjoying the momentary pleasures of the kingdom of Adam, but they're trying to play God on the side. They're trying to give God a few props so as to not suffer the consequences. Well, it's really cute that you think that you can make God more awesome than he already is in himself. It's cute that you think he needs your help to show his character, but it's not so cute that you want to use sin to do it, which is abhorrent to him. So your question exposes you, not God. I feel like Paul could have talked like this in his passage, like he could have gone on about our motivations and the trickiness of this question. Actually, this question crops up in different forms three times in Romans. The first time is in chapter three, verse five, and it's such a foolish notion that Paul doesn't even bother to deal with it. It's repeated here, and then it's repeated later on in our passage in verse 15. Then every time he answers with the same two Greek words, which mean by no means. That's a literal translation of his, his answer, by no means. And those words are milder than what Paul intends. So the exclamation point in our translation is on point to tell you that it's a very forceful response. Um, I'm sorry, literally it means, that was our translation, literally it means may it never be. May it never be. Others have translated impossible, God forbid, absolutely not, never. Or in the Connie Devon translation of the Bible, roll your eyes back in your head as far as you can. That's exactly what Paul meant by those words. Instead of mo uh, exposing the motivation of the question, Paul argues it's a ridiculous question because people who have already tasted the forgiveness of God, those who've already accepted his grace, those whose hearts are full of thankfulness, full of indebtedness to God for giving us mercy, fully aware of how much we don't deserve from God, those people don't belong anymore in the kingdom 
of Adam, but have been transferred over to the kingdom of Jesus. They don't belong anymore in the kingdom of Adam. So let's go through his argument a little more carefully in Romans chapter six. Uh, here's a question again, what then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may increase? By no means, how can we who died to sin go on living in it? Paul answers a question with a counter question. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And therefore we were buried with him in, by baptism into death. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. The Christian in this passage is the one who is dead. The price for sin is death. And whoever is dead is free of sin because the dead are no longer in a position to rebel against God. But how does that help the living? If only we could die and come back to life. That's the exact process that these verses describe. That's included in our gift package of grace. We get to die, we get to be buried with Christ in order to shake off the grip of sin and then come back to live free now from sin. Not physically, of course. One day we will do this physically, but now we go through it through baptism. Paul says, well, we're Baptists. We know all about baptism. It's in our name. But do we admire the magnificence of this physical act? I was reading one commentator who said that the early Christian assumption about baptism was that it was both a dramatic symbol of a new exodus and a sign of Jesus' death. And there are a lot of ties in with the original Exodus. You know, Jesus' death is tied into the Passover, which is part of the Exodus. Um, so this commentator said, therefore, baptism brought people into the historical narrative of a new Exodus. So I want us to think a little bit about the original Exodus. Our story is knitted into the fabric of, our, of the first Exodus, our belonging, our being, our new story going forward is now embedded and implanted in salvation history, the story of the living, acting, saving God who will bring his creation to its intended glory, its intended goal. So can you see yourself there in glory, in freedom, this is where your story leads if you have been baptized in Christ. So think back to that first exodus of the Israelites who had been slaves. They had to walk through those waters of the Red Sea in order to be fully free. And the key event through which slavery is left behind and freedom is gained consists of passing through water. And this is what we do in baptism, transferring us into freedom. We are co-buried with Jesus and we co-resurrected with him as we come out of the waters into a new land, altogether the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is where we now belong. 
Romans 6 goes on in verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Mm, mm, mm. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed so we may no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is our emancipation proclamation right here. The sovereign rule of sin has been decisively challenged by grace. And when that grace enfolds the baptismal candidate, entwining the Jesus story, the Jesus reality becomes ours. And communal solidarity with sin is broken, and we are free to live under a different lordship. That's what someone said about this passage. So this passage is about status, first and foremost. Where do we belong? What country do we belong in? Someone said, if you don't belong to the country of France anymore, why are you speaking French over here? If you don't belong to the kingdom of Adam, why are you sinning over here? It doesn't compute. Who do we belong to? Status is primarily in mind, but behavior does follow. Verse 12 of chapter 6. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey their desires. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And then verse 15, what then? Should we sin because we're not under law but grace? I don't see any eye rolling. I'm going to be rolling your eyes now at that question again. Ridiculous. By no means. The lure of the kingdom of Adam is very strong, isn't it? Anyone who has struggled with sin, and by anyone I'm looking at all of you who have struggled with sin, and me too, everyone. Anyone who has struggled with sin, all of us, <clears throat> have experienced the ominous magnetic pull of the dominion of sin. And we have a muscle memory of sin. That passage understands that we sin with our bodies. We have a muscle memory of sin, of the participation, not just of our thoughts, not just of our desires, but of our bodies, our whole selves in sin. And sin doesn't even feel bad when we're letting it rip, does it? Feels kind of good then. It's only afterwards, when the consequences come down on us, when we cool down, that we feel a little different about it. Then it's a different story, but in the moment, it feels pretty good. And we have all been through that cycle many times, haven't we? Many times. In addition, generational chains are very 
powerful. A parent's sin is visited on the children. And we learn in our family structures dysfunctional and unhealthy ways of relating. We see the same things and do the same things that we hated when our parents did them to us and we become our mothers and fathers. And if there's generational trauma on top of that, we're learning a lot about generational trauma these days. I came across this definition. Generational trauma is, the, is kind of like a footprint on the brain that is carried then down through genetics. It's an accumulation of patterns of behavior cemented by neural networks and hormones. Pain is literally passed down generation to generation. It becomes coded in the DNA. There are so many oppressive forces at work. And think about how sin has worked itself out in your life. The kingdom of Adam has a gravitational force stronger than Jupiter's. And we may feel that we are stuck and that we stand no chance against it, that we are helpless against sin. But when we are baptized into Christ, we do not belong any longer to the kingdom of Adam. That is not our home, and sin will have no dominion over us. It's in the future, by the way, in our passage. I didn't know if you noticed that. Sin will have no dominion over you. It's a promise and guarantee. We now belong to Christ. And from that platform, from the kingdom of Christ where we now stand, we do not have to sin. It is not our destiny. We're not genetically, temperamentally destined to sin any longer. We can and we will break those chains, chains through the power of Jesus Christ. That's super abounding grace. This is where we belong. Let's live in the power of Christ's grace. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, make us uncomfortable until we have acknowledged our sin to you. Do not let us rest. Prick our conscience so that we might turn to you, repent, confess, and receive forgiveness. Do your work in our lives. We invite you, God, to do your work in our lives, even though it may be uncomfortable to us. And we pray that you would have the mercy upon us to come to us and to save us from this kingdom that we live in, the world that we live in, the brokenness that we live in. Save us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon. But if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.